Anderson, it's right to pick up on the composition of this jury. The first three jurors uh, really indicated different things in terms of the approach of both prosecution and defense to dealing with the obvious, which is you're not going to find people who don't know anything about this situation. Mm -hmm. There's also, uh, later in the show, a little bit of inside scoop on the controversy over this third charge. It was out, now it's back in. They're waiting on a court. Uh, We'll talk through why it matters as much as it does. Appreciate the coverage as always, my brother. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Tonight, a huge sigh of relief. The A's are 220. The nays are 211. The motion is adopted. The Democrats got you all kinds of relief. That's right, the Democrats. This is a matter of fact. There was zero help from the opposition party. Every single one voted against. Against a bill backed by a majority of you, including many of the opposition's own Republican constituents. Against sending Americans $1,400 checks against giving unemployed Americans a $300 a week boost in support, against cutting child poverty in half, against saving tens of thousands of jobs. Now that it is done, some of the opposers are becoming posers like this. Look at this tweet from Senator Roger Wicker, Mississippi, celebrating the money for restaurants. Remember, He wanted to starve you. He voted against this money for you. Fact. President Biden owns this, good or bad, the first major legislative achievement of his presidency. This bill represents a historic, historic victory for the American people. I look forward to signing it later this week. Everything in the American Rescue Plan addresses a real need. Please uh, focus on this. 61% of Americans wanted this rescue. Two-thirds of the country think it will help our economy. Among them, a huge number of of Republicans. More than a third of working-class Republicans think the bill should have included even more relief. So you've got to be thinking, why was the opposition so opposed. More important to know is why they were so quiet in their refusal. They know many of their own wanted this. They're making a different bet. Remember, these are the people who played to the denial of the pandemic. They're betting that they can still make people angry, divide, and therefore be a safe harbor for the hostile come election time. So they are going to be against everything Biden tries to do because they are opposing him. That's why they tried to pitch pandemic relief as you paying for them and their kids. What's the message there? Ugly and obvious division by deception. They only want a rescue plan for Dr. Seuss. And by the way, facts first, it was his estate that decided not to publish more of certain books. No one else made that happen. Rescue Mr. Potato Head, they say. Rescue the royals from any reckoning of racism. Because, you know, 
there's something about that Meghan Markle that seems, oh, I don't know, dark. Yeah, you mean like her skin? She forgetting her place? Is that why you're so upset about it? Everything they say about Markle is code for dividing us by color. Remember this day. This was the chance to make up for the pandemic denial that they enabled. Instead, they decided to double down, period. The House chaplain today made a plea to the Lord for mercy on those who turned their backs in a national emergency. We pray your mercy. Forgive them, all of them. For when called upon to respond to a once in a century pandemic that has rocked our country, they have missed the opportunity to step above the fray and unite. The servants you have called to lead this country have contributed to the spread of an even more insidious contagion of bitterness and spite. Amen. But I argue to you, the real time for prayers isn't what's for what happened in the past. It's about prayers for what's about to happen. That disease of denial and truth, the disease of denial, that truth and justice don't exist. That's spreading faster than COVID. And the feverish effort to oppose now extends to a new fight to make MAGA stand for a return to Jim Crow voting restrictions. That is not hyperbole. Over 40 states, over 250 laws, all making voting harder, especially for minorities. And the opposition party wants you to think they are suppressing the vote as the Lord's work. Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written and held by the devil himself. When he's talking about that, is he talking about this guy? Must be, because Senator Mike Lee said what he said on the same day that another shady recording of him comes out pressuring another Georgia official to help him steal the election and nullify thousands of votes, including the black vote. I have the tape ahead. You can't be talking about H.R. 1 because the bill is designed to expand voting access. It's not an anti-security bill. It doesn't make things less secure. He couldn't argue that. Surely the devil would not create a bill to make sure all Americans of every color have the right to vote and have their votes counted, right? You don't see that as evil, do you? Is it the devil's work to employ diversity and democracy? I don't think so. Why would you say that? Ask Senator Lee. Ask the opposition party. But I'll tell you this. H.R. 1 is the only single step way to stop a wave of wicked, wanton voter suppression from Republican-controlled legislatures all over the country, including the battlegrounds of Georgia and Arizona. Let's bring in the better minds on what lies ahead. Dana Bash and Natasha Alford. Good to have you both. Dana, Why was something that is so hard to vote against, given the wants of your constituency, voted against Mm -hmm. anyway? You know, it's it's actually part of, of a pattern that we saw during the Trump era 
that is bleeding into what we're seeing right now, which is um, the party is at times, and this is exhibit A, voting against the, uh, the needs of many of their constituents. And you just have to look at CNN's poll this morning and every other poll about this bill, Chris, which I know you've seen, it, it's not just Democrats who support the specifics of what is in here, the relief that is in this bill. It's Republicans who do, which is why when you listen to Republicans on the House floor today, uh, in their press releases, in their tweets, they're just they're using kind of the um, the cookie cutter Republican language, which is it's a socialist agenda. It's a liberal a agenda. And it is a big, big, big bill. There's no question. But it is if you look into the bill, uh, into what uh, is in there, uh, the core of it is addressing the needs of right. the people, many of whom are their constituents. Right. You have more people who said there should have been more in the bill than people who said they're against the bill. Natasha, I want to take a listen to Senator McConnell, get some context of what he's trying to put over on this. Spending dramatically more money than we obviously need at this particular point at which time the economy is coming back, people are getting vaccine. We're on the way out of this. We're about to have a boom. And if we do have a boom, it will have absolutely nothing to do with this $1.9 trillion. Economically, he can't know any of that. But he does know, Natasha, we're nine and a half million jobs down from where we were before the pandemic. What do you think the play is? If you can convince people that there's no real crisis, right, then action is not necessary. And, and I just listened to that soundbite with so much disgust because I know that there are people who are still getting coronavirus. We're still getting warnings that we are in the midst of this thing and it is not over. And it is so uh, like Mitch McConnell to put the politics above the people, right? And just like we saw with the Trump administration to put politics above our actual safety. They risked our lives to sell us this big lie that the pandemic wasn't real and also that somehow the election was rigged. And so I think the American people are going to remember this moment. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell is banking on folks, uh, focusing on the politics, but the American people will remember that they stood up against stimulus checks and unemployment insurance and access to medical insurance. These are the things that actually matter in terms of getting things done. But if the GOP can convince you to focus on the culture wars and the politics, they don't have to engage in policy. Mm -hmm. They don't have to tell you what better ideas they have. You know, I've been encouraged to let this moment breathe a little bit. This is a big win. Nope. The real fight is the next one. And not just because it's the next one. Not everybody thinks the way I do that success is only failure averted. The H.R. 1 fight and these laws that are going to fan out all over this country because the Republicans have been smart. They've been working these state races. They've been winning these state races. They own a lot of these state houses and governorships. Now comes H.R. 1, which is the only chance to stop the spread of those laws. And just like the pandemic bill was sold sotto voce by the opposition party as, do you really want to help them pay for their kids and get them out of poverty? That was code. Today, they dropped the code, my friends. Listen to what was said on the floor of the Congress. 
Black Lives Matter had in this last election. I know it's a group that it doesn't like the old-fashioned family. Um, disturbed that we have another program here in which we're increasing the marriage penalty. What? And nobody said anything no about him, Dana. <laughs> nobody said anything. No one in the party stood up. If I said anything even like that right now, both of you would start yelling, whoa, way wrong. I don't want anything to do with that. CNN does not deserve to be underneath that guy's name. Nobody came out and said anything about him, Dana. Yeah, I mean, because this is what happens when you have the big lie and then extensions and, and tangents that come out of, of the big lie. And so when you look at what they're doing in Georgia, in Iowa, uh, and other places where they're, what they have, as you said, Republican legislatures, and they're working on rolling back the really uh, unbelievably uh, open ability for so many voters to actually go to the polls early, to have more opportunity at different times to vote. One of the, the main reasons they're doing that is because just look at Georgia. Um, they don't want voting on on Sundays. Why is that? That souls to the polls. I mean, they know. It's yeah, really they know. Souls to the polls is exactly doing. right. They know who votes. Dana, you hear that? It's shock. Me. They know what they're doing. It's a sense of shame. Natasha, when you hear that guy say, "No irony, no sense of guilt or anything," yeah, he's got the mask on, but you can see from his demeanor, he's fine saying it. That. Black Lives Matter, you know, I don't believe in our idea of the family, old-fashioned. What the hell? How does that hit your, your heart and your head? Well, you know, as a Black American, racism has never had to be hidden, <laughs> right? So I'm not surprised that he just came out and said it. Um, I, I think it, it reflects this country. This is the same country that emancipated enslaved people and then was like, wait, here are some poll taxes. You know, here are literacy tests. These are all of these roadblocks to you actually accessing the vote. So this is a continuation of uh, the American tradition. And we know that these restrictive voting laws, they don't have an equal impact on everybody. They always hurt the black voters the worst and the voters of color who they don't want to engage. So these voter restriction laws are really racism wrapped in a bow for 2021. And everything that you would think would make America actually great is in HR1, automatically registering people to vote, expanding early voting. We know what it's like to stand in long lines and making sure that you can't just randomly get kicked off the voter rolls. If we have a government for the people and by the people, then why would the GOP be afraid of something like this? Mm. Two members of that party, one comes out and says that giving uh, voting rights to everybody and making sure those votes are counted is the devil's work. Another guy comes out and says that black lives matter, which is just right. It's just a euphemism for black people. Um, don't like our idea of family. No one says anything to shut any or either of them down. That's where we are. Dana Bash, Natasha Alford, thank you very much uh, for helping the audience tonight. Appreciate you. Now, major relief is coming. Good. To who exactly? How much? But most importantly, when? Now, I can't answer that last one. And it's the big question. But I will break down what's actually in there to give some sense of what the opposition party decided you shouldn't have. And my next guest is going to expose that they are making a play because what they just rejected in this bill, they used to like. Fake news, you say? We have the receipts. 
Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, next. Now, by now, now everybody pretty much knows the headline of the COVID bill, right? $1,400 checks, extended unemployment, more money for vaccines. But it's important to understand what else is included and why. The child tax credit. The changes there mean that millions of parents could soon get up to $3,600 a child. That alone could cut the child poverty rate in half. Now, on a purely economic level, that's expected to generate about $800 billion in benefits. But on a human level, it's incalculable because poverty kills. We don't even have the latest numbers, but we do know this. The pandemic has caused at least 2.5 million kids who were not poor to become poor. They jacked up the number of kids going from hungry to somewhere around 11 million. And we know they're more hungry in this country than at any time since the Great Depression. How do you not vote to address that need? Restaurants, among the hardest hit. More than 110,000 are gone. So now, instead of competing for PPP checks, there's money targeted to help save the small and mid-sized restaurants that remain. There's more money in fact, in the last two COVID bills combined to finally give schools what they need to open safely. Like what? Reduce the class size takes money. Ventilation takes money. Janitors, uh, staff, PPE, money, money, money. It's in there. In the midst of a generational health crisis, this bill tries to do something else. Prevent another one. How? Many of our fellow Americans are out of work. So we've seen a spike in people without health insurance. In fact, more than at any time Uh, than during the Great Recession, okay, 2008, 2009. The COVID bill will mean more people will be eligible for subsidies to buy insurance, and it takes steps to lower premiums for poor Americans. Too many rural hospitals are on the brink of collapse. Google it. There's money in there to make sure that there can be a hospital for people when they need one within reach. There's specific help for Native American healthcare providers. Why? You see the numbers on the reservations? They have been among the hardest hit areas by the pandemic. Now, here's the question we can't answer. We know what the bill will do. What we can't answer is how quickly can it do it? Take schools. Some of that aid is spread over years. Schools need it now. And since it's not contingent on reopening this year, what could districts do? They could pocket the money and still wait till next fall to reopen. The fact that it's a tax season, what does that mean? It could slow down the $1,400 checks. The Labor Department has to get updated guidelines to states quickly to make sure that there's no gap when the last unemployment extension ends next weekend. Or you could have people who are literally broke not getting that extra help of unemployment in time. So that's the question. Can they get it done? Lots to get after with a Democratic senator from Virginia named Tim Kane, Senator, I told you I'd have you back and I'll make another date before we even see how this one goes, because I do want to talk AUMF, but there's no reason to discuss it when it isn't relevant because people won't absorb it the same way. So uh, first about the work of government, and then I want to go into the politics behind this. How can you make sure that the government does what it can as quickly as it can, specifically on schools? Um, Chris, we're going to have to really push this. Good news is, you know, we've done it already. We put school funds out in the CARES Act last March, um, and schools were using it. 
And so now we've kind of, it's not like we're doing it for the first time. Um, schools and states have to make decisions about the way they want to use it. And that's something that's tough. You pointed out janitors, cleaning, ventilation systems, broadband upgrades. Some school systems may decide what they want to do is enhanced summer instruction to help kids uh, recoup the learning gap from the last year. Different school systems are going to make different uses of these monies, but the uh, the size of the investment in Paytel schools, in reopening childcare centers, and in higher ed is going to give great flexibility for getting our kids back in classrooms, which makes it easier to get their parents back to work. Mm. Now, you say you can make the case to expose the politics here that were played by the opposition party. How so? Where do you have, what do you have as receipts? Well, Okay, so I, I've got the House version of the bill in front of me, and you can see all these yellow tabs. Um, Republicans decided to vote against it in the House and in the Senate uniformly. But I've gone through quickly and just tabbed all the provisions in this bill that were initially introduced as bipartisan support for keeping our healers healthy, the Lorna Green Act, which was mine to make sure that our healthcare providers get mental health that they need a public health modernization so that our state health, local state and federal public health agencies share data with one another, child care tax credit, um, support for restaurants. You mentioned this. Um, the Republicans voted against supporting America's restaurants, but today one of my Republican colleagues, Roger Wicker in Mississippi, is already putting out in Mississippi, hey, we did this great thing for restaurants, you should apply small business support, support for closed entertainment venues, direct checks to individuals. Remember, President Trump said the $600 Mitch McConnell check wasn't enough. We should do $2,000. It's now $2,000 with the $1,400. Eight million people in Virginia will get checks because of this additional, um, uh, this additional bill that the Democrats passed. State and local government aid that was bipartisan, introduced in the House in May, and finally vaccination support. So this is the House bill. All these yellow tabs are things that the Republicans asked for. We put it in the bill. They decided to vote against it. They're bragging about it now. It's popular with Republicans. It's popular with the American public. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they can play vote against it if they want, but we're going to deliver results. We are when President Biden does it. This will be felt in every zip code and every house in this country. So the focus is forward. Will you keep petting the snake? The snake will bite you. It bit you on this. It just couldn't kill you because you had too many people uh, against it. H.R. 1 is the battleground. 40 plus states, 250 plus laws. Uh, you're the historian, but for my reckoning, we've never seen a wave of anything like this since Jim Crow. Minorities are disadvantaged in almost every one of those states and attempts. The only way for you to counteract it is H.R. 1. And you will never, I shouldn't say that. Do you think you have any chance of passing H.R. 1 with the opposition party playing the way they are right now? Um, you, Chris, you raise a great point. I mean, th this is going to be the biggest battle on the floor of the Senate since the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. Because you're right, uh, after Joe Biden won and after President Trump's big lie that he didn't was revealed to be a sham, 
what's happening in states with Republican governors and legislatures is a dramatic effort to roll back voting rights so that uh, we can we can squeeze and choke the electorate so they can't participate. HR1 and S1 are bills to make sure we protect people's rights to vote. And um, that bill passed out of the House and now on the Senate. Uh, we're, we are going to take it up in the Senate in committee and on the floor. And we're gonna let the Republicans show what they think about voters and participation. Um, and look, if they decide that they wanna block voters and participation, the same way that the filibusterers in the 1960s did, mm -hmm. then we're going to have a moment of reckoning on the floor of the Senate to decide whether Senate rules are more important than people's rights and ability to participate in this democracy. Well, that side of the aisle is calling H.R. 1 devil's work. They had someone stand up on the floor of the House today and say, you know, those BLM folks, they don't like our idea of what a family is about. That's where they are. Nobody's checking them. The only real fight is within your own party to see what you do with the filibuster. Senator Tim Kaine, you're welcome back to talk AUMF, HR1 before that, and whatever matters in the state of play. Be well, Senator. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Great. And to understand the psychology of, come on, man, why are you ascribing all this animus to Republicans? They're not bad people. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about their play. And if you want proof about why they're playing it this way, we have tape for you that captures what it's all about. And it's of the head of their party talking to an, uh, a top investigator in Georgia, and he's asking them to do something that they know they can't. You listen to it for yourself, and then we'll discuss what they're doing in Georgia right now, which sounds just like what you'll hear on the call. Next. This is the battle of a generation over freedom, these election laws. And here's where it starts. The former president, once again on tape, obtained by the Wall Street Journal, pressuring another Georgia elections official. You know, and I won Georgia, I know that, by a lot. And the people know it. And, uh, you know, something happened there. I mean, something bad happened. And if you can get to Fulton, you're going to find things that are going to be unbelievable, the, the dishonesty that, we're, that we've heard from. Right. You know, just good sources, really right. good sources. But Fulton, Fulton is the mother load, you know, as the expression goes, Fulton County. Right. And when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. That's what it's about. They want to rig the elections. That's what he was asking to do. He knew everything he was saying was a lie. Few know the reality of voter suppression efforts better than Ense Ufa, the executive director of the New Georgia Project. Ense, welcome to primetime. Good to have you. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. First of all, is it a done deal, uh, what's happening in Georgia? This um, bill that passed the House and Senate, uh, Kemp has been silent on it. Um, star it makes it a misdemeanor to give food or water to voters in line. It eliminates yeah. early voting on Sundays. Um, is this as obvious as it seems? It is absolutely as obvious as it seems. This is exactly what you think it is. Uh, and full-on, uh, full-throated attack on 
Black and young people's participation in Georgia's elections. Um, you know, what we saw in November and, and nine weeks later in the January runoff was Georgia's multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-generational sort of progressive majority, if you will, uh, slim majority that it is, um, come out in historic numbers and participate um, that because of the attention, uh, the visibility of our elections, and because our elections are secure, uh, that these barriers to participation had been removed. And now, because the Republicans have been embarrassed, they're doing everything they can to attack our elections infrastructure and attack our democracy. Because, it's exactly what you think it is. Because you don't have as many voting centers in the, in the communities that tend to be minority dominated, uh, and you don't have as much staff, so they're not as efficient, you hurt black people more. If you make it a misdemeanor to give people food or water, we saw people standing in line for three, five, seven, ten hours in 90 degree heat. Right. Yes. I mean, this is and the thing is, you know, while I am grateful for how Georgia's elections have been covered and particularly um, black voters who have overcome a pandemic, uh, overcome, you know, again, extraordinarily long lines, uh, massive voter purges. Uh, and we're proud of how, you know, folks have, you know, dug their heels in and said that they will not be moved and that they want to participate. It should not be this hard to exercise the freedom to vote. Early voting on Sundays, um, souls to the polls. For those uh, who were not blessed with growing up around uh, an African-American community and understanding church as culture and understanding what that does in terms of participation in community, who gets hurt by cutting early, early voting on Sundays? The attack on um, Sunday early voting is a direct hit on black churches. It's an, a, a critical institution in the black community. There's a long history of black Americans, black believers uh, voting and participating in public life as an expression of their faith. Right. And so the idea that uh, and let's be clear, Republicans have been attempting to attack uh, Sunday voting in Georgia for quite some time. And this is the latest in their effort. Do you think Kemp goes for it? It's not clear to me, um, but his silence in this moment is deafening. Um, you know, we witnessed national Republicans bullying Brian Kemp, our governor, bullying Secretary Raffensperger, uh, Georgia's Secretary of State. Um, and, you know, I remember, uh, you know, folks saying, giving them congratulations, patting them on the back for defending our elections uh, and defending our democracy. And so their silence in this moment, uh, again, is deafening and it's peculiar. Uh, we also watched while uh, the lieutenant governor of our state, Jeff Duncan, refused to preside over the vote for Senate Bill 241, uh, giving us sort of another indication that there is a huge split. Um, between sort of Trump supporting Republicans who are continuing to push the big lie uh, and other members of the Republican Party. Uh, but their silence is insufficient, that this is the moment, this moment calls for nothing less than a full-throated condemnation of these ridiculous attacks on our elections. Ten times, uh, Justice Kagan presented 10 times more likely than white voters or black voters to vote on Sunday. The proposition is easy. 
Do you want to have the label of having brought back Jim Crow? Because that's how you'll be remembered if you are for this. And say, Ufat, you are fighting the good fight. Thank you for doing show so on my show. Good luck. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. All right, let's turn uh, to pandemic messaging. Got to get people to take the vaccine. Got to assure them that it's safe. Got to have the proof that it's safe. So here on the show, we start testing the new guidelines and say, seems like they're playing scared here at a time uh, that they have to give people confidence that they say they should have. We get beat up. Our next guest says they should have done better, and now they're saying they will. A top health authority who believes that the clock is ticking once again. Why and what are the variables? Next. Good news. The story of vaccination is a good story for now. 10% of us are now fully vaccinated. The numbers are rising. They're rising faster than they thought they would. Still, the CDC urging an abundance of caution, especially when you have states like Texas officially doing away with its mask mandate today and fully reopening. Wyoming, Utah, Maryland are some states saying that they're going to follow. It is hard to understand how that won't create cases given the rampant growth of variants. But given that, is it still the right thing for the CDC to be so cautious about what vaccinated people can do, even when it comes to traveling? Okay, that's very important for people, right? The CDC director says vaccinated people shouldn't do it. Listen. What we have seen is that we have surges after people start traveling. We saw it after July 4th. We saw it after Labor Day. We saw it after the Christmas holidays. Currently, 90% of people are still unprotected and not yet vaccinated. Right. But if you are vaccinated, what does the science tell you about how likely it is that you get sick when you travel and how likely you can give it to somebody else? Do they know? Do they know when they're playing scared? Do they not know so they're playing scared? Let's get through the facts on this and the science. Dr. Lena Wen, thank you for joining me once again, doctor. So the idea of, no, you still shouldn't travel even with the vaccine. Do you think that's the right call? I do not. Look, I do understand the situation that the CDC is in. They want to be cautious, and I do have sympathy for that. They don't want to overpromise initially and then have to dial it back. But I also think that there is a cost to saying things that don't meet the common sense test. Air travel, for example, alone is very low risk when everybody is wearing masks. And if somebody is vaccinated, that risk is lower still. The risk, actually, I would be concerned about unvaccinated people who are traveling, going on spring break, going to lots of bars and, and hanging out and spreading it to one another. I'm not concerned about the vaccinated grandparent who's traveling across the country just to spend time with their extended family. And I think that kind of nuance really needs to be spelled out or else it's not going to make sense to people, not meet the reality test. So you have messaging here being balanced with risk because, uh, as you've laid out to me uh, earlier today on the radio show, which is why it's so important for me to have you here tonight to echo it uh, to this audience, we're in a race, you say, um, and that people, we won't always have uh, less supply than we do demand, that we're going to have to motivate people to want this vaccine. And it may not be as easy as people suspect. What do you believe that races, the variables are, and what the messaging should be. 
My main concern is that we're not going to reach herd immunity because of vaccine hesitancy. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to believe who desperately want the vaccine right now. And they're thinking, oh, well, it's just a small percentage of people who are actually anti-vaxxers. And that's true. There is the anti-science, anti-vaxxer contingent. But I think that there are many more people, millions of people, who, for whatever reason, have concerns about the vaccine, who just don't know what's in it for them. And we need to make it clear to them that the vaccine is the ticket back back to pre-pandemic life. And the window to do that is really narrowing. I mean, you were mentioning, Chris, about how all these states are reopening. They're reopening at 100%. And we have a very narrow window to tie reopening policy to vaccination status. Because otherwise, if everything is reopened, then what's the carrot going to be? How are we going to incentivize people to actually get the vaccine? So that's why I think the CDC and the Biden administration needs to come out a lot bolder and say, if you're vaccinated, you can do all these things. Here are all these freedoms that you have, because otherwise people are going to go out and enjoy these freedoms anyway. And I fear a situation of coming into the fall where we never reach herd immunity. And then we get hit by the next surge of, of, of COVID-19 in the fall, something that we could have prevented if we just got people vaccinated now. Thank you, Dr. Alina Wen. Appreciate it. All right. Another big story that we will be tracking every day, every time there's a development. All right. That's the Floyd murder trial. Today, two more jurors seated. Sounds small, right? Now they have five. It's not small um, because the decisions that are being made here are really a profile of what this case is about, okay? This third charge that you've heard about, it was out, it was in, a judge says they don't want to review it. Why does it matter so much? I'll tell you next. Almost half the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial has been selected. He, of course, the man charged in the death of George Floyd. The Minnesota Court of Appeals just cleared the way for the judge in this case, Peter Cahill, to reconsider reinstating a third-degree murder charge against the former police officer. This could be a very pivotal, pivotal point in this prosecution. Why? Cahill originally threw out that charge in October. Why? Arguably, it does not apply as a middle ground between intentional murder and manslaughter. But last week, prosecutors got the appeals court to make him reconsider it. The state Supreme Court declined to hear Chauvin's appeal, which means the judge has a big decision to make tomorrow. Will he add a third degree murder charge to the other two counts that Chauvin already faces? Former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig joins me now. Uh, first, Ellie, let's look at the people, then we'll talk policy. Um, we have a uh, graphic here for the audience to see that there were some interesting choices made on the first three jurors. Uh, they said that they knew about this. They showed sympathies for BLM. They showed skepticism about police. And yet they were found amenable to both sides, somewhat of a nod uh, to how hard it's going to be to find a complete tabula rasa, a clean slate in anybody here. What did you see in choices four and five today? Yeah, Chris, so I think looking at the jury as we have it right now, the first five jurors in total, if I'm the prosecution, I'm happy with this jury. If I'm the defense, I can live with it. Inherently, as you say, the only jurors who are going to get through this rigorous process, they all had to fill out a questionnaire. They've all been questioned in person by the judge and the attorneys 
are jurors who have open minds and who have something that both sides like and dislike. The two new jurors today, I think, are, are good examples of that. One of them said that he would tend to credit police officers a little more, but he would still scrutinize their testimony carefully. I think both sides have something to like there. Juror number five said he felt like he could see that happening to himself. Now, prosecutors have to like the sound of that. If I, I, I don't understand why the defense actually did not strike that juror. Why? Because when you say, I can see that happening to me, that right. shows you can identify with George Floyd, right? So if I'm the defense, I would use one of my precious strikes to remove that juror. So why didn't they? They may be saving the strikes. They may have seen something else that they liked. And remember, this is an African-American juror. The parties have to be careful here. They're not permitted under our Constitution to use those strikes in a racially discriminatory way. So there may have been some consideration of that important guideline. So the tea leaves at this point are that the defense is pretty simple uh, here, to the extent they even put one on. Of course, all of you at home remember, only the prosecution has the burden here, not the defense. Um, but it's going to be, this guy had a lethal dose of fentanyl in the system. That's what killed him. Um, and that's what they were trying to do there, was trying to get him into the hospital. He was fighting them. He was showing all the symptoms of somebody who was in like some kind of, you know, drug hysteria. Yeah, Chris, I, I expect that to be a defense. I don't expect it to be a strong defense. Here's why. They have to show that the fact that Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds had nothing to do with this. If you look at the autopsies and the forensics in this case, that's simply not what the facts appear to be. And, and if you just think about it, all the prosecutor has to show is that that eight minutes and 46 seconds of pressure, a man's body weight on someone's neck, if that had some contributing factor to George Floyd's death, then the prosecutors are going to win. They're going to get a conviction. So I understand why that's going to be a defense. I don't think it'll be successful. Now, that's why the third degree murder charge is so important. Now, you will observe at home, I'm not debating with Ellie what should happen. You know why? That's not helpful in these cases. Once we know what the judge decides, we will discuss and analyze the impact. That's the way I'm going to cover this trial. There's no reason to engage in the speculation. It doesn't help anything. Ellie Honig, you help everything. Thank you very much. Be well, brother. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. What wild times we're living in. They will be remembered for decades and decades to come. We are living through a complete referenda about what we want to be about. That's what Trump put us into. That's going to be his legacy, other than lying. Thank you for watching this show. CNN Tonight, the big show with the big star Dean Lemon picks up the coverage. And you and I have just aged 50 years, even more than what happened with the last administration. If we go back to Jim Crow type laws in this country, you can't give food and water to people waiting online to vote. Yeah. You can't vote on Sundays. Souls to the polls. Ten times the amount of mm. minority voters as non-minority on Sundays. Yeah. And that's just the beginning. And that's just in Georgia, a very important state. Well, that's how you know you're not selling the right thing is when you can't win by playing fairly, that you have to uh, shape the rules um, in a way that will help you win, that will, that will probably guarantee your win. What Republicans are doing now around the country, and Georgia, Georgia, I think, is ground zero, right? 
But it's not just Georgia. It's happening in a number of states, 253. Georgia, Arizona, 43 states, 253 laws, and counting. If you lost in ruby red states or states that were previously red, that was your fault. That's because you're selling the wrong thing. That's because you're not doing it right. And so if you're right, if we go back to that, it is going back to Jim Crow. This is Jim Crow part two, Jim Crow two. And what it shows, though, I think more than anything, maybe this is the reason that Republicans are so hell bent on talking about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head, because one hand is doing one thing and the other hand is doing the thing that is going to get them guaranteed that they get elected. And that is uh, going to hurt really black and brown voters, but they don't care because that's what's going to get them Well, and at the elected. same time, they're coaxing people along with this momentum of people are out to get you. They're out to destroy White what you grievance. know. White grievance. That's and, what it is. you know, I have to tell you, this is really frightening things. This is, this is more important to me. Look, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously you need relief. This is generational. This is right up there with the judges. If these laws pass and you don't have H.R. 1, which means that you get to decide state by state, you will have systematic disenfranchisement all over All this over country. the country. Yeah. But that, so that's And you know sh- what? By the way, what yeah. I want to fight with Tim Kaine and I'm going to keep fighting this more and more and more. I just I don't like to fight too soon, you know, because it's like you kind of blow your ass. Chris, you like to fight. Let's I like just, to fight. I do the do. job to fight. Yeah. I fight the good fight. Uh, don't always win, but I always fight it. Here's the thing. You know, when the filibuster was brought in, right? Jim this, Crow. This is Jim Crow. And you know right. why, right? Because to they give wanted them to... a disproportionate voice so they could fight <laughs> against any kind of progress they didn't yeah. like. And yes, they were Southern Democrats. So what? A lot of these, listen, d- d- during Reconstruction, uh, black people in this country started to gain some prominence, political mm-hmm. uh, office. They, they were um, elected to political office. Amazing and, what happens when you let people be free. Right. And, and vote then and own things. The white folks who didn't like it said, no, we can't have that. So they started creating all of these laws, right? Mm-hmm. The, the resurgence of the KKK. This is just a true history of this country, which, we, I mean, we have to really, we've got to own up to it. And that's, what's ha- that, that's what happened. So you're right. And that is what's happening again. People are afraid, as you saw with this insurrection, as you see with the whole fake, oh, the election was stolen. People are afraid of the changing demographics of this country, but it's inevitable. It's, inevi- it's, an, it's inevitable. They're fighting a losing battle. What they're trying to do is, because, because America is going to be a minority-majority country, so what they're trying to do is set themselves up so that even though they are the minority in the future, that they will still be able to have power, political power, economic power, and so on. And so, that, thus, the importance of not just waiting for a national election, a presidential election, to get involved in politics, to, to go cast your ballot. You've got to do it in the off years. You have to pay attention to your local legislatures, what they're doing, your local officials, your council people, all of that. You have to make sure that you're engaged locally because it, it's not just the national level. All those local things affects what happens at the national level. Judges, Supreme Court judges, municipal court judges, districting, all of that. And the big thing is what? When they when people when the redrawing of the districts. Yeah. Redistricting, you know, redistricting. It's a big deal. And one of the things that H.R. 1 does means that even if you're the party in power, you still have to have balance on the people who pick the districts. Of course, they don't like that. But, you know, look, the cell that we have to be careful about, because, you know, the right 
is really crafty and good, and they use their media operatives well. Mm -hmm. They're saying, like even something like this tonight, they'll say, here's why you can't trust the media. Look at that Lemon and Cuomo. Look at them saying that that's all America is. We're just racist. We're just bad. But no, it's an and. America can give you great things and not great things. No, well, there's racism what, in the country, but there's, and there are people who are better than racism. There's some truth to what they're saying because that's what they are. I'm not saying, by no means are we saying the entire country is racist. We're saying that what they're doing is they're empowering the racists, the minority of racists who are in this country. And they're using the minority of racists who are in this country to keep them in power. They're pulling the wool over those people's eyes to keep them in power, therefore disenfranchising the people, the majority of the people in this country who would like us to what? Continue to strive for a more perfect union, not a perfect union, but a more perfect union, all of us together. But they realize in order for them to hang on to power, what they must do to peddle what they are selling, that they have to dis- disenfranchise the majority of good people in this country. Let's be clear about that. I'm, th- I'm glad you, you, um, you corrected me. Are you me looking on that. down your nose at me right now? Of course I am. Why wouldn't I? Look at me. Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> oh, listen. <laughs> Don't forget now. Remember, oh, I t- I knew, I, this wasn't my conversation with you last night. You didn't see the t shirt I had. Someone sent me a t shirt. What did it say? Uppity. (laughs) (laughs) Openly uppity. (laughs) I love you, D-Lemon. I love you, too. Let's continue to have these conversations. Always. I love you the mostest of everybody. (laughs) This is... I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.